0: Yale Podcast Network.
1: He was an accomplished and prolific screenwriter, reporter, celebrated playwright, taboo busting novelist, and active Zionist. Hugely famous in his time, his name might not get as much recognition today, but his legacy is still going strong. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Today we're talking about Ben Hecht. With me is Adina Hoffman, an award-winning essayist and biographer. She's written Ben Hecht, Fighting Words, Moving Pictures. Adina, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Good to be here. So for those of us or... The people listening who might not uh, recognize the name Ben Hecht, uh, just on his name value. Uh, What are some of the movies uh, that people will definitely recognize? Right.
0: Well, he would be upset with us for starting with the movies because it was the thing he was best at, but the thing he was least uh, (laughs) excited about. But that said, he was a terrible judge of his own talents. Um, (laughs) He was responsible for, among others, Scarface and Notorious, and 20th Century, and His Girl Friday. His name is not officially on the script, but it's based on the play that he and Charles MacArthur wrote, The Front Page, which is also a great movie, um, and on and on. He worked on, it seems, at something like 140 movies. He didn't get official credit for all those movies, but, I mean, Jean-Luc Godard said at one point that he calls Hecht a genius and said he's responsible for eighty percent of what is used in Hollywood movies today. Um so obviously and that which is to say that it's not just particular movies, it's also entire genres that Hecht had a very large part in basically inventing um, the gangster movie, the newspaper picture. Screwball comedy is hugely indebted to Hecht um, for the movies that he made, especially with Howard Hawks, but not only. So it goes on and on and on and on. Um, and he was often quite happy just to take the money and
1: run. He didn't necessarily <laughs> want credit. What was his early life like, uh, his childhood? He went from New York to Wisconsin.
0: Right. Yeah. He was born on the Lower East Side to immigrant parents um, from either Russia or the Ukraine. A lot of the stories about Hecht sort of – he gives different versions at different times. Um, Born in 1893 or 1894, um, they were there on the Lower East Side for a few years and then his family began to move around and they – took a while to find their place but they ended up in Racine, Wisconsin. So he had these two ver- – which is a kind of you know the ultimate middle American town and it was a kind of booming industrial town at that point. So he had the sort of tenements of his early childhood in the background and he actually – his first language was Yiddish. Um, but in Racine, there was not a lot of Yiddish <laughs> spoken and he was kind of very much the all-American boy. But he then, as soon as he graduated high school, he went to the University of Wisconsin for exactly three days of summer school (laughs) (laughs) and fled for Chicago, which was the city that sort of made him. And he he referred to Chicago later as the city of my first manhood. And it's there where he really got his start as first as a reporter. He was a reporter, first a picture chaser, what, what they call a picture chaser back then, which is to say that he would basically be sent off to the homes of people who had recently been murdered or raped or suffered some horrible tragedy and he would have to steal or coax from the family a photograph of the victim so it could be published in the paper. Um, so he has all kinds of colorful stories about that but he pretty quickly um, was taken on as a reporter and began to write stories for, um, for the Chicago Daily Journal and moved up um, to become one of its star reporters and moved over to the Daily News. Um, and that's really sort of that mythical world of the, the old-time newsroom with these hard-talking, hard-boiled, cynical. But somehow romantic reporters that he and Charles MacArthur would write about in the front page come from that time. And MacArthur was also a reporter in Chicago during those years. At the same time, I mean it's hard with Hecht. There's never just one thing that he was doing. He was all, I talk about him in the book as a juggler. He was always juggling multiple careers, women, <laughs> ideas. As he was becoming and succeeding at being a reporter, he was also beginning his literary life. So he was writing novels and plays – publishing his work in The Little Review, which is this amazing journal uh, that was founded by a woman named Margaret Anderson that was sort of at the center of the Chicago Renaissance. She published for the first time often writers who were unknown then but are now like pretty much the core of most English department syllabi. So everyone from James Joyce to Gertrude Stein and Ezra Pound and Hecht was right there in the middle of it being published alongside Sherwood Anderson and these others. And people like Anderson and Carl Sandburg were also his close friends in Chicago. Uh, so he was always. He had a knack for finding himself right at the heart of wherever the action was.
1: <laughs> and was that was that luck? Was that a, a, a personality trait that allowed him to sort of build these networks and get in with the people that you know it would take to. to to elevate your career in that Yeah, no,
0: I don't think it was luck at all. Not only was he an amazingly gifted writer, um, he was an amazingly gifted communicator. He loved to talk. People were drawn to him. He was very charismatic, um, very funny. And so. And I don't think he was becoming friends with these people in order to further his career. I think he genuinely enjoyed their companionship. They enjoyed his... I mean, sometimes it was very kind of pugilistic. And in particular, he describes uh, his friendships in, in his big, fat, wonderful... A memoir, A Child of the Century, his his friendships with Sherwood Anderson and the poet Maxwell Bodenheim, these were very close friends of his at the time and they were constantly sort of going at it. It was not – these were not peaceful relationships um, but they were passionate ones and one of the pleasures for me of working on this book – I mean I was writing about Hecht himself but because he was always in the midst of it, I got to sort of meet – vicariously meet all these amazing other people in his archive and his archives which are – Held at the Newberry Library in Chicago are just spilling with these letters from all the people I've just mentioned. In addition to you know George Gross, the German caricaturist, and Kurt Vile, and David O. Selznick, and Catherine Hepburn, and wherever whatever he was doing, he was sort of. I mean, people loved to be around him. Ezra Pound is reported to have said at one point that there's only one interesting man in America to talk to, something like that. I'm paraphrasing, Ben Hecht. Um, and that's why he wasn't sure he wanted to come back to America, Pound. He was then in England. Um,
1: <laughs> and what is he like in these, these sort of earlier days? He's a very outspoken person, obviously. Uh, what is he like as, as a journalist when maybe you're getting these stories assigned to you and um, it, doing these, you know, going into people's houses and stealing pictures? What what, what kind of... Well,
0: I mean, he, you know, obviously, you know, it's a little hard sometimes with Heck to separate the myth from the reality, (laughs) but it's pretty clear. I mean, I spent a lot of time actually reading his, the actual articles that he was writing at the time, and they're very lively. I mean, it's not an invention. This is not something he was, uh, you know, sort of embellishing after the fact. Um, And there's a certain tradition that he was a part of, I think at that point, of a certain kind of colorful journalism that, I mean, it was based on fact, but I think there was a certain, there was a little bit more leeway in terms of fact-checking. And in fact, he also (laughs) writes about initially his first – few stories were entirely what is now known as fake news. He basically made stuff up. He and, a, and a, a photographer went and dug a trench and said that there had been an earthquake in Chicago and the photographer took pictures. It was completely nonsense and that there had been pirates on Lake Michigan. Um, he got in trouble. He got busted. But the point is that there was a certain um, room for a kind of color um, that is probably not going on in newspapers today. Let's hope it's not actually.
1: <laughs> and then, so then he becomes, and he becomes a novelist after that. And how uh, like how long is he doing that? A lot of this overlaps. Yeah, but...
0: he's doing a lot of things at the same time. I mean, he was able, and he wasn't actually alone. In being a journalist who was also a literary person, Um, again, Sandberg was his colleague on one of the papers, um, you know, writing these very – what are now quite famous poems um, while he and Hecht were going and covering stories. He was incredibly prolific. Um, In Chicago, he published something like five or six um, books and this was all in the span of like three or four years. Um, And, you know, some of them – I would not make a case. I do think that Hecht has been – unjustly forgotten in many respects because he really is one of the people who is responsible for creating a lot of American popular culture as we know it. So his movies and I do think that the columns that he wrote as a journalist, at one point he became an actual daily columnist writing these sort of wonderful sketches of all kinds of characters he was meeting, sort of the the people at the edges of the news. I think that sort of anticipates the kind of columns that people – um, associate with with writers like Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill. So in that sense, um, he had an effect. I wouldn't recommend that people go back and read his novels um, <laughs> in quite the same way. And I mean, actually, I should also say his as his plays, the plays that he and Char- Charles MacArthur wrote. You know, they were hugely popular in their day. This is slightly later when he moved to New York, but those plays. I mean, Tennessee Williams, for one, describes he described to Helen Hayes, who was married to Charles MacArthur, how. Um, Hecht and MacArthur had, he said, taken the corsets off of American theater and basically made it possible for Tennessee Williams to write his own plays so that there was a way in which there too his effect is still felt even if he's been forgotten. When it comes to those novels, I don't think that the novels themselves are worth reading but I would argue and I sort of do in the book that – I think the effect – the way that he cleared the way for the novelists novelists who came later, people like Saul Bellow and Philip Roth and um, Norman Mailer, it seems pretty obvious to me that there is a connection. Bellow writes explicitly about having read Hecht as a young man and feeling that he was was sort of leading the way towards something that one day Bellow himself would write. Uh, He had – Hecht had a novel that he published in 1931 called *A Jew in Love*, which, to me, completely anticipates uh, Portnoy's complaint—not exactly in terms of the story, but in terms of the and the characters, but in terms of a kind of very, um, uh, let's say, frank use of sexuality and a kind of explicit. Description of Jewish characters as Jews, and it in its day caused the same kind of uproar that portnoy 's complaint would would cause many years later. He had you know uh, rabbis preaching against him from the synagogue pulpit uh, and so on so he liked he liked to stir things up i mean one of the books that he wrote in Chicago was this ridiculous um, novel that was basically written in order to goad the sort of uh, morality police into causing a stir. And in fact, they, he and the publisher uh, and the illustrator of the book were taken to court. Um, eventually, he was defended by Clarence Darrow <laughs> and um, H.L. Mencken was his character witness. <laughs> in the end, it sort of ended with a, a fizzle and not a bang. He lost his job. He had to pay $1,000. But the point is he he was courting controversy. He wanted
1: to get in trouble. Trevor it's, it's interesting too because he's – as you mentioned his you know he might not have the fame today that he warrants um He's very – he's famous in his own time and also simultaneously ahead of his time. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I mean I was struck when I was writing this book. You know, people always ask you when you're a writer, what are you writing now? And I would say, oh, I'm writing a biography of Ben Hecht. And then I would almost always get a pretty confused look. <laughs> Some people I think didn't want to admit to me that they weren't sure who I was talking about. Maybe his name rang a bell. They'd say <laughs> the movies. We'd have this little guessing game. Movies or, or the front page. Maybe they'd know the front page. Uh, And then when I told them when I began to list movies, of course they knew that. But it's very – it's striking how little his – the full range of his accomplishment is remembered.
1: And so obviously he ends up in show business at some point. How does he end up? Well,
0: first after Chicago, he heads for New York. Uh, He and his second wife, um, they go to New York, and he and Charles MacArthur, who had also been a reporter in Chicago, as I said, are reunited. And it's really there that they become good friends and and writing partners um, for writing plays. Uh, Hecht also becomes good friends with Herman Mankiewicz, who was a great wit and sort of a theater person and a theater critic, and. Uh, would eventually become quite well-known himself as the screenwriter of Citizen Kane. And it was Mankiewicz who first went out to Hollywood and who sent this telegram to Hecht in 1926, which is one of the f- most famous telegrams in Hollywood <laughs> history in which he basically says, you know, if, you, if you're if going to get yourself out here, Paramount will pay you $300 a week, and that's just peanuts. You know, there's millions to be grabbed out there, and your only competition is idiots, he says. <laughs> Don't let this get around. So Hecht is having a bit of a crisis at some level. I think He's sort of worn through several he, – he hasn't quite – on the one hand, he's had this very stellar career as a reporter and a novelist and a playwright. But he somehow hasn't figured out what he wants to be when he grows up. <laughs> and so he seizes this opportunity. And it's not that he has any great love of the movies. And in fact, he's pretty – explicit early on about how contemptuous he is of what's going on there. And he says basically, if you have, you know, if you any child can write this, you know, I had never seen I'd seen five movies and I figured it out really quickly. I whipped this script off in a couple of days. And the script that he whipped off, allegedly Uh, would go on to be um, one of the first important gangster movies ever made. And it was really based on um, what he had observed and written about as a journalist in Chicago. And that would be Underworld, directed by Joseph von Sternberg. It would win Hecht the first ever Oscar for best original screenplay. Hecht, when he saw the movie, said – that he would vomit. He felt that he would vomit. <laughs> he was so put off by the changes that Sternberg had had uh, wrought on his script. But the fact is he was just wrong. It's a wonderful movie. I mean, it's true that the movie is actually pretty distant from what Hecht wrote. But I do think that he absolutely deserves credit for having brought this kind of an entire kind of way of looking at the underworld to the screen, and that's gone on to to give us a whole century of movies. Everything from you know the Godfather movies through all the Scorsese's and the Sopranos. Um, so the germ of that was there in the script that he wrote, um, and he he never lived in Hollywood. He basically always would work for short intensive spurts there for a few weeks or months at a time and then go back to the East Coast. And he and his wife eventually settled in Nyack, New York, where um, Charlie MacArthur and Helen Hayes also had a house. Um, and so that's the way – and then he would come back and he would write another novel. Um, he, was, he was sort of trying to make money and then go back to the thing that he thought was his true calling. And it's kind of ironic because at some level, he really was, I said earlier, a terrible judge of his own talents. Because as he was whipping off these scripts, he's laboring over novels which no one reads anymore, and they really shouldn't read them anymore, whereas these novels, the movies are some of the most enduring movies ever made.
1: And you mentioned he, he wins an Oscar. He sent the Oscar back, yes, right? Yes, he did.
0: He <laughs> sent it back. He said he didn't want anything to do with it, and then You know, this was part of—it's always a little hard to know how much he means that the kind of statements of contempt. Um, They eventually sent it back to him and he said, all right, you know, I'll use it as a doorstop Um, here. I just want to read to you, though, this is a kind of—just to get a sense of—this is not my exaggeration when I I say that he had contempt for the movies. I mean, so, Okay, Godard calls him a genius, but he himself wrote in his memoir that— the, so this is a bit later. This is already 1954, but he says that the movies are quote one of the bad habits that corrupted our century. And he calls the movies an eruption of trash that has lamed the American mind and retarded Americans from becoming a cultured people. Uh, so it's just you know it's kind of confusing though. What do you do with the fact that he was the greatest, one of the greatest at this um, at, at you know, writing these scripts, and he and that 's his view of the movies. I mean, in general with hecht, it tends to be the things that he 's doing most casually and taking least seriously um, that he 's best at <laughs> it 's often when he 's trying hard to sort of strain for a kind of seriousness um, that it feels strained and not very effective um, and I think that deep down and he writes as much elsewhere, he actually also loved the movies i mean there was there's just no way he would have kept coming back he wasn 't a total glutton for punishment, <laughs> but I think that there also was a genuine Genuine sort of um, pain at 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 what he felt was the need to to sell out. I mean, is maybe not the terms he would have used, but he says that um, that writing cheaply, writing falsely, writing with less than you have is a painful thing, and I think that was real pain.
1: So in uh, 1939, Hecht says uh, that's when he became a Jew. Yeah. Uh, what, What does he mean by that? Yeah,
0: that's a good question and it's one I actually ask in the book because it's a slightly slippery comment. First of all, I don't buy it. I think he was a Jew all along. It's very clear he was a Jew. I mean obviously he was speaking Yiddish and living on the Lower East Side and and his particular kind of wit is very Jewish and he was writing books like A Jew in Love. So I think at some level it's nonsense. But of course what he meant is that basically what was going on in Europe had stirred in him this need to speak out much more forcefully about his identity. Um, And what happened to him, I mean, there's a kind of spooky moment where he actually wrote a short story in 1937 or 1938 in which he pretty much predicts what's going to happen to the Jews of Europe. He writes about what he calls the Great International Pogrom in which half a million Jews are slaughtered or run out of their houses. Um, And he sort of imagines the scene of somebody opening the Jews of the world, opening their morning papers and suddenly coming to terms with what it is or the Jews of America, I should say, opening their papers and coming to terms with what what it is that's happening in Europe. And so – and that was very real and he did stop sort of his joking around at least when he was writing this sort of thing. Um, He began to write columns for PM which was this kind of very lively progressive newspaper in New York um, that were – some of them were columns like the columns he'd been writing in Chicago about all kinds of you know, doormen and colorful characters who he was encountering. But he also wrote much more explicitly about Jews and being Jewish and, and he was almost – he kind of relished saying it, writing the word Jew. And it was kind of – he wanted to rub people's faces in his Jewishness and in the fact that there were Jews in the world who were suffering. And that may sound sort of not such a big deal to us today – But Hecht was responding to what he perceived to be a real fear among American Jews of speaking up and admitting who they were and what their allegiances were to the Jews of Europe, Um, that there was a fear of anti-Semitism and that somehow people were afraid that if if you talk that way, you might stir it up. There might be pogroms in America. And so what happened was he was publishing these articles – that said Jew, Jew, Jew and they caught the attention of a man named Peter Bergson. It was actually not his real name. It was a sort of nom de guerre, a pseudonym. His real name was Hillel Cook and he was a Lithuanian-born Palestinian activist um, and a kind of emissary from the Irgun, the um, extreme right-wing nationalistic nationalist underground in Palestine who had come with just a few sort of comrades to the United States in 1940 to raise money to form a Jewish army in Palestine. And the idea is this would be an army that would um, fight alongside the allies against Hitler but would also sort of at the same time create some facts on the Middle Eastern ground and would make it possible to eventually – run the British out of Palestine. The British then controlled Palestine. Um, And so that's – so Bergson came to America, read Hecht's columns and said – for some strange reason, this is our man. We basically need to recruit him and make him the American spokesman for our cause and When he and his you know his his few comrades there approached Hecht, Hecht just sort of laughed at them and said, "You guys have totally come to the wrong address. I am not a political person i don 't really care about Palestine, but they somehow got to him." You know, they understood they were very – Peter Bergson was a very clever man and I think he saw in Hecht a kind of – on the one hand, he was a cynic. On the other hand, there was this very romantic sense of of the world at the same time. And Hecht was in fact charmed and fascinated by this vision he had of them as being sort of these Jews like knights, you know, kind of in shining armor who were going to go save the Jews of Europe. Um, so he agreed to to help them and so initially that was really about – um, helping them form an army um, or raise money for an army. But it morphed – this was called the committee, the Bergson Committee. It had various names. But their goals morphed a lot over time. And as of November 1942, when they realized that – when the, basically when word of the final solution got out um, – and Bergson actually had a scene that almost is like a reenactment of that short story of Hecht's in which he's reading his morning paper, The Washington Post. And on page six, this tiny little story, he reads that two million Jews have been slaughtered and that it's not just Jews being killed. It's like a systematic program to kill the Jews, to annihilate the Jews of Europe. Uh, so at that point, they – this, the committee and Hecht and Bergson and the others completely shift course and they basically devote themselves to trying to raise awareness and of what's happening and they do that in all kinds of ways. Hecht takes out these huge ads. I mean the committee does but they're written by Hecht, these full-page ads in newspapers um, full of his trademark wit trying to to tell people to kind of scream from the rooftops about what's going on. So in one famous instance, there's a an offer seems to have been made by the Romanian government to let the remaining Jews of Romania out, then there will be a certain um, fee per refugee. And so Hecht writes an ad that says, you know, for sale to humanity, guaranteed human beings at $50 a piece, um, you know, which is designed to upset people. He wanted to upset people. Unfortunately, they often got upset at him and not at the, – <laughs> the what the, you know, he was trying to upset people people, uh, you know, at what Hitler was doing or at at Roosevelt's inaction.
1: What was, you know, Hecht's reaction to America sort of refusing some of these refugees um, from Europe who are trying to flee this? Did he have thoughts? Was He says he's not political, but then he does Well, get he
0: becomes political. Yeah. I mean, I think once he goes over to, to being their man in America, he really does. And he's he's very outspoken. He's very, very critical of Roosevelt. And it's you have to imagine at the time, Roosevelt for the Jews of America was a total hero. And so Hecht is taking on, yet again, a kind of sacred cow, um, but he's not I don't actually think it was cynical. I think it was absolutely heartfelt and I think he felt a kind of desperation um, that it was necessary to call a spade a spade. Uh, They also – aside from the sort of witty, angry ads that they were taking out, Hecht also wrote a couple of articles that were really the first um, articles in mass – Um, circulation journals like Reader's Digest that described in a lot of detail what was going on. And it was based on one of those articles that he and the composer Kurt Weill and Moss Hart and Billy Rose eventually staged this unbelievably extravagant pageant at Madison Square Garden in um, March of 1943, which was – seen by 40,000 people in one night. They had two different shows. It was the largest um, audience that had ever come to Madison Square Garden and it was called We Will Never Die. And the idea was to, again, to kind of use their showbiz talents to call attention to what was going on. And so it has people like Paul Muni who's, you know, Scarface himself stands up and sort of gives a speech and there's a huge choir of rabbis and it's very dramatic and it, and then it's, it's shipped out around the country um, And, you know, there are different productions that are put on in big cities and there's newsreels that circulate all around the United States. And so they did actually manage. I do think that there is a way in which they kind of broke through um, the barrier of a certain kind of resistance to the knowledge of what was happening. The American Jewish establishment and especially um, Rabbi Stephen Weiss, who was something like the leader of American Jewry. I mean, it's unofficial, but he had that kind of role, um, was really upset at what the Bergson Knight people and what Hecht and Bergson themselves were doing because they considered Weiss and his sort of establishment um, you know, colleagues felt that these were just interlopers and hotheads and that they didn't have um, the authority to speak for America's Jews and they were also scared. It's very clear that they thought, I mean, Weiss is a character unto himself and he had a huge ego and he didn't like being upstaged but I think some of the other um, members of the American Jewish leadership genuinely thought that this was going to bring Sort of pogroms to America that if they if if this kind of talk went on, it was going to be bad for the Jews.
1: At one point, the uh, the British accuse uh, of inciting yeah. murder with his writing. Right. right. Well,
0: so what happens is then there's another morphing that takes place <laughs> between. I mean, that was what I just described was during the Holocaust, and that was really a pretty earnest effort to save whoever could be saved. At, toward the end of the war, things shifted again and in Palestine, Menachem Begin, who was the head of the Irgun on the ground, basically declared an armed revolt. And So this is a, basically a seri- – it's like a terrorist campaign against the British uh, and Peter Bergson and Ben Hecht and the others who were in America basically shifted their attention to both trying to lobby for a Jewish state in Palestine so that Bergson actually bought a big um, building in Washington with a former Iranian embassy and flew the flag of what he hoped would one day be the Jewish state. It didn't exist, but it's sort of, you know, if you build it, they will come. Uh, so he opened that embassy and Hecht and they, the other thing that they wanted to do was to work to bring um, the Holocaust survivors and DPs from Europe to Palestine, which was illegal at that point because the British had placed very severe um, immigration quotas um, on Jews coming to the country. So they basically had to smuggle them in illegally and so uh, Hecht – wrote a play, another play called A Flag is Born, which also stars Paul Muni, <laughs> uh, Scarface um, and uh, Celia Adler, who's sort of star of the Yiddish stage and a young, fairly unknown actor named Marlon Brando. And it was very popular. I mean, it didn't get good reviews, but a lot of people wanted to see it. And they made a lot of money and they basically were able to buy a boat, a kind of run-down boat, which they sailed to Marseille and they picked up 625 DPs and a crew and they allegedly set off for Bolivia um, And and as soon as they got out of – French waters, they turned the boat toward Palestine and they raised the flag and they renamed the boat the SS Ben Hecht. (laughs) Um, But that boat was eventually caught by the British and everybody was deported and sent to Cyprus. And so Hecht was very, very upset and he – not just about the boat but about what he saw as the British – You know, oppressing his people and not letting them into Palestine. And so he took out another one of these ads. um, And this is what got him in trouble. It had a huge headline. It was a full page ad and it it was taken out and ran in the New York Post and the Herald Tribune. Um, and this is in May of 1947 and it said in huge letters, letter to the terrorists of Palestine. And he writes to my brave friends and there's a lot of text but he basically says, the Jews of America are for you. You are their champions. You are the grin they wear. You are the feather in their hats and he goes on and on and then he says this and this is the, this is the zinger. This is what did it. <laughs> Maybe the most – I don't know about the most famous but the most infamous thing he ever wrote. Every time you blow up a British arsenal or wreck a British jail or send a British railroad train sky high or rob a British bank or let go with your guns and bombs at the British betrayers and invaders of your homeland, the Jews of America make a little holiday in their hearts. Mm. That's pretty hardcore and the British were not amused and he pretty quickly – his movies were banned basically Mm. from British movie theaters. And at that point, you know he had once been the toast of Hollywood. He was the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood at a certain point, the most acclaimed, uh, the most celebrated and they the studio bosses basically said, "No, we cannot risk this. We cannot risk money on ben hecht 's scripts anymore because Britain is too important a market." So he was basically blacklisted and at the same time as the much more famous blacklist of alleged communists, but this was his own private blacklist. So, you know, he continued to work, but he either did it anonymously or under a pseudonym, uh, and it was a painful time. I think there was some way in which, you know, all of his contempt for the movies was now, you know, compounded by the fact that they didn't really want him. They wanted his talents. They just didn't want his name.
1: You mentioned Saul Bellow earlier, and Saul Bellow said he uh, – that Hecht was hard to pin down, um, and it's not hard to see why yeah. he might have yeah. said that. <laughs> um, What would Hecht want us to remember about him if he were to pin himself down?
0: That's a great question. Um, You know, it's a hard question because I think at some level his memoir – is so – he he makes it clear just how multiple he was. Like he contained multitudes and he doesn't pretend that that wasn't the case. It's not as though he eliminates any of these things. It's true that Hollywood takes up a surprisingly small part of that memoir. So I, do, I think he would not want to be remembered primarily for the movies. I think the fact that he named that memoir A Child of the Century points to the fact that he wanted to be remembered as someone who had lived through – you know, the most amazing times and had been at the center of things. And I mean in some sense I think that if if we're going to remember him for something that is not his movies, it may be things like that book itself. I mean his, his memoirs – it's not just that. There are a few other memoirs – are I think wonderful pieces of prose. Um, and so there's a way in which the life itself is a kind of um, – masterpiece, a messy masterpiece. I mean there are a lot of flaws in that masterpiece but I think maybe that book is a kind of acknowledgement of the fact that the life that he lived was itself um, the artwork and so I mean I felt lucky to have him as a subject um, to write about and I, I took his work really seriously but I also took his life very seriously because they're obviously utterly you know intertwined and that's true when you write a biography of any kind of artist um, or anybody really but in his case it's even more extreme because I think to just look at the work without the life would be um, not as interesting, and the life is full of the work, and he was kind of addicted to work.
1: All right. Well, the book is Ben Hecht, Fighting Words, Moving Pictures. Adina, thank you for coming on.
0: Thanks a lot. Thanks a that lot. does it for this
1: week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.